we've got to get started. Uh, folks, this is uh, Theology Unplugged. It's great to have you. It's great to have those who are live with us here on Facebook. We're doing this live on Facebook now, and it's also great to have everybody that is uh, uh, coming to us through the feed, whether it be iTunes or uh, some other feed catcher. Uh, we, we've got a video. Uh, we're doing this on Theology Unplugged, so we do have a video, and we're going to be posting this video on YouTube, our YouTube channel after this. So if you wanted to see this in video form, that's great. But most of you are uh, uh, acclimated to our uh, iTunes. So uh, Dan, right now I've got Dan and Ed, Dan Wallace and Ed Komoshevsky. Uh, I said Dan and Ed as if people would know. Dan and Ed, Dan Wallace and Ed Komoshevsky are sitting in Dan's library together. Oh, library. This is Ed's library. Oh, this is Ed's? Yeah, Ed, I am jealous right now. I am. I'm so jealous. That is just that's impressive. You set this up intentionally just to overwhelm me for the questions and whoever seeks to challenge it, don't, don't you? Hey, we planned it. We planned to do this outside, but the California boy over here was just too much of a wuss to handle the cold. Yeah, so we had to come. And most of these are fake books too. <laughs> All I've got is my picture of uh, Attila the Hun and Leo meeting, and uh, some might call me Catholic for that. Um, Clint Roberts uh, was going to join us, and he may still join us. I'm, I'm waiting for him to be able to get a good, solid connection. All I see is black right now whenever I look at him in the lobby, but he is in the lobby, but uh, it's just a black picture. So we will wait for him. We're going to do something special this time, and I thank Ed and uh, Dan for joining us. This is a lot of fun to be able to do this, to be able to pull in scholars and uh, uh, do an unplugged session. And this is kind of marrying our converse with scholars with Theology Unplugged. And we are uh, going to go through a series of questions. And the basic rules are these. That <laughs> All right. I'm going to add them, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. We've got... Gentlemen. Gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> I have this blank. I have this blankie just for you, Michael. The blanket helps. The Batman blanket, guys. Okay, now if you are not uh, seeing what I'm seeing, you you do really. Oh, need well, we can see it. We, we just wish we had never gotten this in our mental image. <laughs> You'll never get it out now. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, believe it or not, Clint, <laughs> Clint is helpful. It, <laughs> that's Carrie behind me, folks. But the Clint is helpful in these things. Uh, he is not just a muse, and uh, he is not our uh, uh, comic relief. <laughs> I love the girls, Clint. How did you get that to work? What? Oh, well, you know, I use a lot of conditioners. Uh, I like a full body. I like a nice sheen. And... Uh, you know, when it all gets too much, I simply remove it and put on the party hat. Woo! <laughs> right. Is that better? We, we, we are there for uh, the party. Just happy We're to be alone, gentlemen. I can't hear you that great. So if you uh, speak a little bit more into the microphone of whatever it is that you're using, that would be awesome. Okay. I'll do what I can. Okay. Now, uh, here's the basic rules. We're going to go through a bunch of theological topics that I'm going to put on the screen, and I will read them to you as well. Each one of us has two minutes 
to discuss this. Carrie is behind me with a timer, and she is going to be timing it right on, and you have to stop on the two-minute mark. Uh, we'll put up the theological question, two minutes each. After that, after we all go through, then we will have a, what is it, a, a grudge match? A, 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 a two-minute. There's the dog barking. Um, a grudge match. Uh, can, can you text my wife? <laughs> a grudge match or a cage match or something. Maybe we all end up agreeing and that doesn't take very long, but we've got five minutes after that. So we are just going to, without further ado, I'm pulling up the agenda and I'm going to throw question number one out there. And I, I, I'm going to choose who goes first. Sometimes I might go first, but I'm going to go ahead and throw this one directly at Ed Komashevsky. Ed, is church discipline a necessary mark of a true local church? I'm going to say it's not a necessary mark of a true local church, but I'm going to say it's a necessary mark of a healthy local church. I think that you have to have some system of church discipline in play if you're going to obey New Testament commands that talk about things like submitting to your leaders who will one day give an account for you. I think you have to do something with serious sin in the midst of the church. And there has to be a way of dealing with that to keep that body as pure as possible and its witness in the community as pure as possible. I also happen to think that there's something else going on at the Lord's table besides mere symbology or something like that. And I think that when we bring sin to the table, we are affecting not only our individual sanctifying grace when we partake of the elements, but even our collective sanctifying grace. That is, I think that there's a way to argue that coming to the table provides sanctifying grace for the individual, but also for us as a corporate body on the whole. And when we allow sin to come and people to partake of the table, and we don't fence the table, so to speak, then we are doing something to disrupt that sanctifying process. But I, again, would just reiterate that it doesn't mean that you can't be a true church if you're not exercising church discipline. If that were the case, gosh, we'd have to say the host of evangelical churches I've been familiar with over the past quarter of a century are not true churches. I'd say they're not functioning as healthily as they possibly could, though, without church discipline. And you just simply can't obey the New Testament commands without it, obeying your leaders. Uh, what do we do about the table when you say certain people shouldn't come? Why do some people get weak and some people sleep and so forth, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11? Uh, yeah. We need to be doing what we need to do to protect those people from going to the table and eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. So if you're going to have healthy individuals and you're going to have a healthy corporate body, better have some church discipline in there somewhere along the way. Well, that was right at Was that right at two that's just like Ed. To just walk in does he do that? <laughs> I'm just waiting for the dang practice beforehand. All right, Dan. My turn. Yep. I'm going to watch the 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 timer till about one minute and fifty three seconds. Then I'll speak. Is that all right? That's good. It's it's dead air time. You don't care for that, huh? That's good. We'll just we'll just uh, watch uh, Clint. Actually, what's the um, music? I agree with Ed on almost everything. I don't agree with him about bringing sin to the table collectively that it would affect each one of us. I think when you have churches of a certain size, you're going to have people there who are bringing judgment on themselves by, by being in sin when they come to the table. But I don't know that that really affects the rest of the church. You look at some of the churches today and how big they are. Good grief. We should never, ever have communion, period. <laughs> a church of uh, 
any more than two or three hundred people. So that is where we'd have a little bit of disagreement. I noticed in First Corinthians 11, Paul says that some of you have died or fallen asleep because of disobedience to the table. It doesn't say that everybody has. That would be kind of bad news if everybody had. But Paul doesn't single out the whole group and say, all of you need to repent of the sin of some. Now, I do believe that we have that kind of collective community of, of collective sin, but I don't think that it affects it at that level of the Eucharist. Let me add one other thing, though. I think in order for a church to be able to exercise discipline today, membership is virtually a must. I grew up in a church where we didn't have membership roles, and consequently, if somebody wanted to uh, go to another church, that would be no problem. It didn't matter if there was discipline or not. And so you could just float from church to church, but if you have discipline combined with membership, I think that's going to be the very best way in order to get the church discipline. All right, good. All right. Uh, Clint, you can't take his extra 15 seconds, though. I've already got it. I already spent it. All right, go. Uh, no, I, I'd like to disagree just for uh, just for fun and for dramatic purposes, but uh, I mean, I'd I'd be faking it. So, no, of course, of course, you can be a true church uh, if you're not doing that right. I think there are a number of things you could do wrong or insufficiently and still be a true church. It seems like you'd be going too far to say you're not a true church. And as and as Ed said, that would flunk out a whole lot of churches since they just don't do it. However, yeah, a healthy church would have to have it because uh, unless you're lucky. I say lucky because unless you just so happen to never have any problems with people so that if there are never any disciplinary issues, uh, I mean, that's a good church. I might want to join that, join up. If years can go by and there's just nothing that would require it, uh, then you'd skate through. But in, invariably, it seems you would need it at some point. And so just, I mean, even just practically speaking, you'll have to have some way to deal with someone, let's just say, who's way out there or causing real trouble. And then how will you do that? Or will you not do it at all? Or will you do it in some botched way or some way that's not related to, uh, you know, to biblical teaching? And, and yeah, I, I also would say I think it's individual. If there's something going, if somebody approaches the table, I mean, it does seem singular there, right? Let a man examine himself. And frankly, I'd be afraid if I went to any large group. And, I, and if I feared that somebody were there uh, taking the elements unworthily and that that might drop judgment on my head, I might just opt out. Just, just why risk it, you know? Uh, so, so no, I think, I don't think you have, have to have it to be true. Uh, but I do think you would have to have it uh, to function properly and, and to be within biblical bounds. Unless, like I said, you're one of those very, very rare churches where everyone's just fantastic church of about six people. And they all just managed to do get along just fine. No disciplinary issues. Then I guess it would never, it would never come up. You know, here, no, nice going, nice going, perfect. Here, here's my, uh, and Carrie, I'm on, all right? Am I on? Put me on. Okay, here, here's my deal right now, at least. Uh, I, I, I probably, <laughs> I may be the only one blessed enough to have gone through the disciplinary pro process and been brought in for church discipline in a church. And so uh, I have personal experience with it through that. Now, the, the difficulty is whenever you have uh, situations where, where, um, you're trying to figure, and I agree with you guys that it's not a mark of the true church, simply because, as you've said, 
most churches would not be true churches. And I do not believe that, you know, God is idle up there in heaven playing cheerleader and hoping that somebody finally makes a true church by disciplining, disciplining people. But, but at the same time, I, I don't know how, if you put me in a practical situation and said, hey, employ church discipline, my biggest problem will be, and it always will be, what do I discipline? Because the things that I've seen disciplined within church and the things that I've seen in the same situations go on, it just, it, it, it makes me really um, upset whenever I start seeing church discipline because it, it's, it's picking and choosing. It's, uh, how, how do you discipline someone for being too selfish? How do you discipline someone for their pride? How do you, how do you discipline someone? Why do you discipline someone for their sexual sins, but not for their uh, gluttony? I mean, on and on we go. And then all of a sudden you have this, this situation to where, okay, we've got this long list and we're, we're, we're saying all these are worthy of church discipline. And then the second question is, okay, who's going to find these people and discipline them? Or is that the job of the church or, or, or what, what is the job of the church in those situations? So it's, it's a real practical matter that I don't understand about it. I'm not saying it's not biblical. Um, I'm not saying that there's not something to this, but at the same time, I just, I have no idea how to even begin to do this in a way that, that I'm, I'm cleared of my conscience. And, and I, I know that maybe it has to do with, uh, ah, shoot, I'm the only one who didn't, didn't uh, get done. Did you okay. get done? You got done. We're, we're done with that. Now we go into our grudge match where we can all talk. Anybody wants to add something. Clint obviously doesn't. He left the room. I know. He does. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> I, guess, I, I texted him and said, you're out for being uh, so uh, so uh, uh, casual and not taking this seriously. And I just disciplined him. <laughs> well, I would discipline him for that, yeah. So – Guys, come on. I want to clarify something and then use that clarification to push back on what Clinton Dan said, basically saying, look, it affect the rest of the group. I'm talking about in something in the context of a known sin within the body. Thinking back of Paul talking about the sexual sins that were known within that congregation of people. If those things are known within the congregation and the leadership does nothing about it in the context of church discipline, and people just continue to go on as if everything is normal in the local church. That is certainly going to affect the level of communal sanctification in that church. It's got to affect God's blessing upon that church. He works in through those people and their proclamation of the word in that local context. And watch this for camp. Where's the woman? Somebody's mind. Hold on just a second. I lost you just a second. Uh, you said something about Dan. I did. I thought you did. Maybe I just misheard you. Oh, I don't know what you heard up in hell pointed, but I just wanted to give an anecdotal case where I knew a situation where in an E3 church, the woman who was leading worship was living knowingly out of wedlock with another man in the church. The leadership did absolutely nothing about this. And you can bet your bottom dollar that when people came to the table and people were taking there was all the murmuring and things going on. That individual sin of that couple affected the rest of the community. So I'm not talking about the hidden sin because, shoot, I even come to the table and 
sins that are hidden in myself. I don't even know all the ways in which I sin. So I'm not saying that if there's secret sin in a church of a thousand people, that somehow you're not going to get any sanctifying grace at the table. What I'm saying is that when there's known sin that is not dealt with under biblical parameters for church discipline. Okay, I've got questions to push back on that. Number one, um, is it so? So the key thing is, at least with leadership, is to hope everybody keeps their sins secret in order so that you don't have to deal with them in such a way because we've all got secret sins. And so let's just keep them all secret so that we can have a, a clear conscience within the church and a pure church, as you said before, coming to the Lord's table. I don't see that being able to work out. Number one, that's number one. And number two, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would add here that Ed is talking about how that affects the whole church. It does. Does it affect it specifically with reference to the communion table, though? That's a different matter. And I think you're going to have some people who are going to have disagreements with each other in the church. You may have somebody who's got a grudge against somebody else. Does that mean both of them cannot come to the communion table? How do you deal with those kinds of issues? Right. And the big question, too, is, is when you look at 1 Corinthians 11 in particular, you're talking about uh, communal emphasis in the way that people are coming to the table and their relationships with one another. So all I want to stress is that there is both an individual and a communal aspect to coming to the communion table. I'm coming as an individual, but we're also coming corporately as a group before the Lord. That at least has to be on our radar. Why do we punish this person over here with uh, sexual sin and not this person over here with gluttony? I think that some sins are just more obvious than others. There are certain sins that we know if you find up a hundred pastors. I mean, somebody comes in the church and they're way overweight. How do you determine why someone's overweight? Maybe they've got a There's health a issue. Maybe they've got a thyroid problem. There are all sorts of subjective explanations for that. But if you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife, you can't talk your way out of that one, bro. Within a marriage, there are people who are living out of wedlock because they do not they're libertarian. They do not believe the government should have anything to do with a with um, uh, weddings, and they believe that they are married, uh, just the government has never said it, you know? I had a situation similar to that in my church when I was pastoring not long ago. It wasn't for, for tax reasons. It was an elderly couple who were living together and said they had no sexual relations. But you know what I did? I went to them and asked why they were living together and asked what it was with that particular situation and made sure that there wasn't sexual sin happening there. It was known to all the elders and it was known to our smaller congregation what the situation was and why that was happening. So we didn't go and say, we're going to simply discipline you because there's this appearance of evil or something like that. We asked the pressing question. Okay, next topic. Here we go. Yeah, get off gluttony, will you please? <laughs> uh do you do devotionals <laughs> I, I i the only reason i have this is because i had a little bit of fun with this and it was it, it turned out to be a really an important issue for a lot of people and i think what i'm asking not so much is just do you do devotionals but kind of what is your what is your uh uh prayer life like and what do you think of devotionals so let's start with uh clint well, first of all, Michael, I would like to say, first of all, that all of your opinions in that previous topic were blasphemously heretical. And the reason I say that is simple. I forgot. Now, moving on. It's because it's Michael Patton, too. Yeah. It's easy. I wasn't sure what you meant at first when I saw that when you when you listed that topic. And, and based on what you did 
uh, provoking the Facebook world with that, which you did last week, I think. I thought you were trying to say, do you read little devotionals? You know, like, do you do a daily? Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I thought you meant a devotional. Like, do you I'm read? Say, your... I'm going to say Morning and Evening by Charles Swindoll. Or Charles. Yeah. <laughs> my, da- my daily bread. Or, you know, the ones that people uh, people do. Or now they have them on uh, apps. Now, or like daily apps. for buttons. Oh, yeah. They have, they have so many on the Bible app, you don't even know where to start. My favorite one, by the way, my favorite app. I see people. I see people post this sometimes. The daily thing they do. It's called <clears throat> Sprinkle of Jesus. Have you seen that? <laughs> That's what it's called. Uh, so, so I. So when I thought that, I thought, okay, if that's the question, I mean, the answer is no. I don't do any of those. I don't do those. Um, and I wouldn't. I don't think I would ask someone if they necessarily do those. Although those can. I mean, those can obviously be good. For people, um, I think I would hope people kind of go beyond what those do, especially over time, uh, maybe in the beginning. Uh, so to me, I think in terms of study, I think, do, you know, do you study the Bible? I try to read and study and understand and apply the Bible. Now, you included prayer as part of devotion. I suppose it is. Um, if we're not talking about the devotion as a noun, as a thing you're doing, but I mean, like as the as the content but as an act, as sort of a spiritual discipline, then I suppose it does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm like, I think I'm like just about everybody in that. Yes, I, yes, I do and want to a, a lot and don't do very much. I mean, I mean, in terms of, in terms of serious, you know, being seriously devoted to prayer in a, in the way that probably most of the saints of all did. You're done. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, You're okay. I'll go next. <clears throat> Um, whenever I asked this, I asked this in the context of whenever I was at seminary and we went on our seminary retreat and I remember going outside and it was very early in the morning and I thought I had beat everybody getting up. Uh, I think I got up around six o'clock, maybe around six 30 and I thought everybody'd be sleeping in and I just go, you do a good jog, but it was all the graduates, you know, it was our graduating class. And I walk out and there are people everywhere, you know, doing their, their whatever, you know, prayer stance or devotional stance. I mean, there were people at the, the park bench, there were people on their, on their porches, there was people out on the dock, there was, I think there was somebody out in his, in the boat you know, a little canoe doing a devotional by himself and they all had their Bibles. And I immediately, you know, felt this sense, oh, I'm supposed to be doing a devotional right now. <laughs> That's what we do. And so I had a dilemma there. And, you know, um, a lot of people have asked me a lot uh, about this and it's like, did you do your devotional today or do you do your devotionals? I've got somebody that's close to me that uh, swears by them and swears that it basically heals everything, every problem that you have, as long as you're doing it. And if you're having problems, it's because you're not doing it. But, you know, I mean, um, I, I, I don't do devotionals in a, in any formal sense. Um, I, I don't know whether that is to my shame or what, but there's not a real formal relationship with me and God in the same way that it might be with others. I'm not necessarily justifying that. I'm just saying this, me, me and God relate and, and, uh, and I talk to him, but it's more in my car. It's more driving down the road, discussing things with them. And, you know, it's more arguments with God too. I mean, I'm always arguing with God about, you know, why don't you do this and this and all right, you know, uh, okay, how about this? Let's try that. And, you know, just seeing where he goes with a lot of stuff and um, it, to get down. And I used to, whenever I was 
first became a Christian, you know, I'd get down on my knees and, and pray every morning. And, and, um, uh, you know, I had a big long list of things to pray for. And, and unfortunately, I'm not really a prayer warrior the way that say my sister is. She pray, I, whenever I need something, I call her and I say, will you pray for it? Cause I know she will, but it doesn't mean that my relationship with God, it could always get better. Definitely. Uh, but a lot of my stuff with God has to do with personality and also theology. I think my Calvinism has a lot or dang, I was just getting in good stuff. You were just running on at the mouth, I think. I know. It was, it was, it was right. and except from a guy who doesn't have devotions. You know what, uh, one of you guys, one of you guys go first. I'll, I'll take it. Having devotions is an evangelical shibboleth. I don't know where we have a, ver a chapter and verse that says you must have your daily devotions. And yet that has become the mark of spirituality in American evangelicalism. Hmm. It really is. It, it's irritating to me that that's how we do it. Now, I'm going to define it a little differently from you guys. This is how it's been in the circles I've, I've traveled in. Having devotions means opening up your Bible and reading something in your Bible every single day and praying. Those are the two key elements of it. I don't know that there's any place in the Bible that says that we need to do that. At the same time, I would argue that our entire life needs to be in devotion to Jesus Christ. Everything we do should be an act of devotion. Everything we do should be an act of worship. And for you to go out and do a morning jog and you get to enjoy the natural uh, revelation that God has bestowed on the universe, that's devotional, or it can be. Just like studying Greek and Hebrew can be and should be devotional for seminary students. As for me, I, uh, I do try to read a chapter from the Bible uh, every night, but that's, I don't feel guilty if I miss it. And when I'm teaching my classes, what I'm doing in the Greek text, what I'm doing in the Hebrew text, that is devotional. I never separate those two out. I think that's going to be a, a, a hypocritical view where you begin to think of the original text. I'm speaking to seminary students now. You begin to think of the original text as something that is just for study. And your English Bible is for devotions. I think that's a false dichotomy that leads down a very dangerous path. Mm. So I'll yield the last 20 seconds to Ed. My very first semester in seminary, a professor told us that if you don't have a devotional life apart from your studies in this place, you're going to go crazy. I followed that advice for a little bit of time, and ironically, that made me a little bit crazy. The problem was is that I learned a bad habit. I learned that there were some times I opened God's word for him to speak to me, and there were other times I opened God's word so that I could write a paper or prepare to deliver a sermon. And I think that that is an awful dichotomy. I need to come personally to the text with the attitude that every time I crack the cover, God is speaking to me. And so I had to learn to make all of my studies, like Dan was saying, an act of worship, an act of devotion to Jesus Christ, and not develop that bifurcation between having a devotional life and a life of study. And that's particularly problematic for those who are in seminary or those who are in professional ministry. It's, it's a vocational liability or occupational hazard, if you will, that you can fall into this rut or this habit of studying and writing and doing all of that work so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing and perform the tasks that are there, and never minding the fact that while you're doing that, God is speaking to you at the same time. I think it was John MacArthur who once said, I don't prepare sermons so that I can stand up and deliver them in front of people. He said, I study the text and prepare sermons so that I can know God.
And I think that when we do that, every single time we crack the cover of that text, we are actually doing devotions. So I don't like calling one subset of something devo to devotions, alluding back to what Dan said. All of this is an act of devotion. All of this is an act of worship. And so I don't have any kind of devotional, specific, limited activity within my life. Uh, we agree. All right. Well, uh, we're done. <laughs> be much of a cage match, because I think we all agree quite a bit on this. You know, just to follow up a little bit, you know, I, I'll have me, me and Carrie, my, my admin, we'll have long conversations about things, long conversations about people or God or whatever else. And at the end, that that's just that that feels like a devotional. And, and it's not as if I'm trying to find, OK, like Dan uh, was talking about, what did I did I finish my devotional in one way or the other? OK, there was an hour with Carrie. I'll count that and, you know, I'll count one passage of scripture. I, I like the idea that Dan says that everything we do is a devotional. I mean, that's that's freeing. I, that's that's whenever you, you start to feel the the idea of uh, Christ setting us free. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's more about a pattern of living than it is making sure that I get my apple a day keeps the devil away kind of thing. Yeah. And yet there's there's a little pushback here, which I would say is. That doesn't mean that gives us an excuse not to be in the text. Christians, of all people, need to be, it's a text-based faith, really. We need to know the text so we can know the Lord. And so, I'm not in the Bible every day, therefore I never need to be in the Bible. I'm not saying anything about, like, my knowledge of the Bible or anybody's here. I mean, we've all been to seminary and, and been through a lot. And uh, But, uh, you know, a lot of times I just feel, uh, you know, I'm just going through in my mind. A lot of the scriptures, you know, it's not it's not that I go to the text and I say I have to read it, but the text, whenever the text is in your mind as well, oftentimes you're just going down the road and you're thinking about things, and the text is coming up, and you're you're reading text in your mind. You know what I mean? Right. And I would say too that you know my comments were were from the perspective of someone who's who makes a living based on your time in the text. Yeah. The danger of discussing devotion separate from that time in the text. But it may be that you have different advice or take a different approach with someone who's the average layperson and who isn't spending hours a week in the text already. My big beef is when people who are spending all that time in the text have this little devotional life over here. And I'm saying, why was God silent the 40 hours that you were preparing this paper or writing this book or preparing this sermon? Uh, I, I don't like that idea. Like I said, I think it's an awful dichotomy that whenever I open the Bible, sometimes God speaks to me and sometimes it's for me to speak to others about God. I crack the text and God is saying something to me every single time. Let me give uh, an illustration here. Uh, my wife applied for a job about 20 years ago at a major church to be the receptionist. And it was a phone interview. And the person who interviewed her said, um, tell me about your uh, daily devotions. And she said, well, I don't have daily devotions. He said, that's the end of the interview and hung up. That's the, that's the kind of problem that we're facing. It's ironic that you have this kind of a thing that has become more sacred to us than what the scripture actually teaches. And it, yet it's in a devotion about scripture. It just let's, let's be biblically based Christians. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Dan, I don't know if you have time for one more question or you might bow out while we're asking this last one or both of you guys are going to not be able to make it. How uh, long are you going to babble, Mike? <laughs> I'm going to move on. Okay, let's see here. Let, let me ask you this, Dan. Which one do you want? Uh, seminary online or 
uh, <laughs> I know you don't want that one. Uh, you do you call yourself an evangelical? Let's go with uh, door number one. All right. Ah. Okay. Here we go. Seminary online, and since you haven't started yet, you start us. Okay, so you're asking the question. Oh, excuse me. What is seminary online? What is your opinion of it? My opinion of getting a seminary education online, where the entire education is online, is that it's a disaster waiting to happen. And here's the reason why. Ministry is to prepare you to deal with three-dimensional people, not two-dimensional people. The incarnation was not Jesus coming to a Facebook screen like we have right now. Jesus came to earth in real flesh and blood to minister to real human beings. How can you possibly minister to somebody who is troubled, who is deeply concerned about their sister who has just become a lesbian or somebody else who's... Uh, uh, you, you know, there, I, I could go on and, and a number of issues are coming up that are too personal to mention right now for all of us. But the point is that uh, you cannot deal with people and their pain. You cannot rejoice with them if it's just two dimensional. Now, I understand that for some folks, that's the only way they can get the education. If it's a matter of cost and it's a matter of distance, they may be in another country and they cannot afford uh, to go elsewhere to get the education, that's the best they can get, then that's great. But if it's a matter of convenience, where you don't even need to get out of bed to have this online class, then I think you're doing something that's going to be disastrous for you and for the church. All right, uh, let's go with Ed and then Clint. I'm going to say that I think the availability of it is good. I think the pervasiveness of it is bad. I think that, like Dan was saying, that you have some people who have no other way to get that education. If their motive is, is to get that education through that, then God bless them. If, on the other hand, someone has the resource, the ability, the physical wherewithal to get somewhere on location and study under men like I did under Dan two decades ago, well, you're getting fairly old. So are you. <laughs> then you have to capitalize on that opportunity. I didn't just learn how to do exegesis. I had this man looking over my shoulder correcting me encouraging me, uh, providing rebuke at times, and barking my papers up with red ink, things that happened in person and that we discussed and did in that 3D fashion that shaped my character, not just the content that I knew. So I think the question is, if somebody's saying, should I do online seminar or not, the question is, what is your motive? For the person who that's the only way they're going to get it, I want them to get it that way. For the person who says, I'm not going to take it any other way because it's too inconvenient, it's too hard, it's too difficult, not the kind of person that I want to be my shepherd, not the kind of person that I want teaching me the word of God. And so I would say again, just in some, uh, I like the availability of it, the pervasiveness of it, and the fact that it has become a cash cow for certain schools, and it's overshadowing their on-site brick and mortar education, deeply troubles me. All right, Clint. Well, first of all, I mean, just as a general question about online uh, education, I think I'd say... Uh, I think I would set apart the seminary question. It's a specific to me. But just even in general, I should say, I mean, I've done this for years. I've taught a lot of classes, a lot of classes, for a lot of schools, for a lot of years, going back to when they first started doing it. Why? Because they asked me to, and they needed people to do it, and I learned the how to do it, and they pay you to do it. But even to this day, if somebody asks me, you know, about it, I mean, I still tell them the truth, which is, it's not the same. 
How can it be the same? It's not the same. And, and there is something you're going to lack. There's no, and, that, and I'm talking even just generally. I'm talking even just undergrad. It's just not going to be quite the same. That just seems to me pretty obvious. But is the lack a big enough lack uh, to make it prohibitive? And I think, as we've said, circumstances have a lot to do with it. People's lives and, you know, a lot of, a lot of old adults who work and everything, or, or military people and people in tough circumstances. Uh, but particularly with seminary, I mean, like, you know, like you guys, I, I did it the good old-fashioned way. Not because I chose that over online, because the Internet didn't exist. That helped me make that decision, right? Uh, but, you know, that was invaluable, uh, so I don't know what it would have been like the other way. I don't, I don't, I mean, it couldn't have been the same, right? Uh, and I think if somebody does do it, and, and seminaries are going to do online stuff. Everyone is. I mean, the, the few holdouts don't aren't even holding out anymore. Some of the old school um, historic, you know, universities and seminaries, I think some of them for a while said, we're not doing that. And they changed their mind yeah. for economic reasons because it's a competitive market. Uh, you know, the whole higher education is, is, is kind of, is kind of screwed up in terms of where their money goes, you know, to some, to a few administrators while they're using like 10,000 adjuncts, but don't get me started on that. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you guys, um, about because it's my experience. I mean, I experienced, uh, going to DTS Dallas theological seminary. I know who I was with at that seminary. I've got friends that I made while I was there. I was over at their house. We ate meals together. We hung out together. We'd sit after class, after Dan's class, and complain about Dan together. And, I mean, it, 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 created, it created this bond. And I'm not saying it's it was church, but it's, it's the bond that you get to and that, that shapes you at the same time. That that's that's beside the the being there with the professors and you know I mean frankly guys I mean not all professors are going to take take uh, hold of you like Dan took a hold of Ed or or the, take interest in you. It's, sometimes it's too big and so I don't think that that's really the reason why I jump out because there's always going to be those few professors that are that are really working on that. I mean, Dan took a photo of us <laughs> first day of class so he could remember our name. And that was very impressive, but most, uh, nobody else did that. And so, um, you know, my, never forgotten your name either, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> my deal is, is being there, being with other students, just the, the fellowship that that creates. And here's, here's my main thing. And this may be not part of the question, but my main thing would be this idea of going all in. I mean, if, if you're feeling called to a seminary, to me, it's like, it's a big deal. It, it, it's not a small thing. Now, I know a lot of people just do it just to, to get education on the side. I'm not really sure what to do with them because I don't really expect them to come all the way to the seminary. But whenever you're trying to be educated and trained in order to go into ministry for a life and, 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 and suffer that, that uh, cause then I think you have to go all in and you have to be there. Uh, is this now time for a little bit of free-for-all? Because yep. I want to disagree with all of us now. Sorry. No, I don't, but I, I would like to say uh, this, that I think you've captured something, Michael. And that is, do you want to get a physician 
who has decided I'm going to go to the school that I can get into, barely make it into the school, and I'll take as many online classes as I, I can to, to get out of this as fast as I can so I can be an MD? Or do you want to get somebody who says, I want to be the very best I can? When it comes to a pastor, when it comes to somebody who's teaching the Word of God, I want to make sure that that individual has done the very best job they can to get the best education for a lifetime of ministry. The time you're in school is, is relatively rather short compared to the rest of your life. And it's, you're not going to be able to get through if you take online classes any faster than you would uh, in real life unless uh, because of finances you, you, you have to take a little longer if you're doing it three-dimensional. At the same time, you're going to get so much of a better education. And it's not just personal with the faculty. It's personal, as you said, outside of the classroom. There's this fellowship that takes place that cannot happen with online classes once you turn off that computer. Yeah, I'd echo what Dan said. I, I agree with everything he said 100%. I agree with everything I said because he was saying, I want to agree with what you said. So go ahead and just say, I agree with everything Michael said. Okay, I agree with that. I, I always agree with you, Michael, except on the one thing that maybe we'll talk about on another show down the road. But theology is learned in community, right? And because theology is learned in community, we want to be in community. And I don't know if you can replicate that sense of community in a completely online program. The other part of it is, is not just learning theology in community, but like Luther talked about, learning theology through suffering. I learned theology in community by developing relationships with people. Then we walked through hardships in life together while we were learning theology. And it was... I learned as much from them and the application of theology and its understanding of how to apply the biblical text of everyday life by engaging in those relationships within community. And I think that you're wrong of something when you don't do that. Like you said, Michael, there, there are people out there who are doing this on the side. They're learning so they can go into the marketplace of ideas in the business world. And, and I, I applaud that fully. But the core of a seminary ought to be the people that are going through boot camp, so if you will, and that are going to go out into the front lines of ministry, those are the people, like Dan said, those are the people that you want to get the absolute best possible training. So again, yeah, I love the accessibility for different people on the outskirts, but the people that are really going to roll up their sleeves and dig in, just like you were saying, Michael, they need to be all in. If somebody came to me and I on a pastoral search committee, and they said that they got a degree somewhere and it was completely online, I'd have to ask why. And I, I, they'd knock my socks off and impress me to the hilt if they said the reason was is because it was the only way I could get an education. I need to do it that way. Yeah. Someone else who didn't have to do it that way took the easier route. I'd say, I don't know if you're the right person for the job here. Yeah. That's what Harold Honer used to say when we interviewed students who uh, were applicants for the PhD program. He said, why do you choose Dallas Seminary? And if they say, well, it's convenient. I'm in town. They did not get accepted in the program. They want, we wanted to have the students who thought this was the best product program for the ministry that they wanted to have. We believe that it was for many of these students. For some, they needed to go elsewhere. But you don't accept somebody into that kind of a program who just wants to do it because it's easy. Yeah. No one should go into ministry because it's easy. And if the entree into ministry is an online education because it's easy, then you're going to have a rude awakening when you get out there and minister to real people. Grace Morgan Ollinger says, yes, it does need to be done in the context of community. Thanks for that comment, Grace. Um, Dan, are you, you're out of here, right? Yeah, and so is my computer, which is what we're using over here. Well, 
then then we we are going to end this uh, this broadcast theology unplugged uh we will pick this back up we got lots more questions in the queue and we'll just pick up where we left off next week on theology unplugged and thank you dan thank you thank you ed and uh as always clint uh, uh clint's a regular here so uh hopefully we can get you guys to be regulars as well and next week and, and i'll talk to you guys about what y'all are doing next week later so i can't tell the audience that you guys will be back um but next week we will have our 70 percent. that's what he said 70 percent bye guys bye-bye all right, I am ending the broadcast here. Thanks, guys. It's uh, great, great. Thank you, audience, for being here. We're going to keep on doing this on Thursday nights, so mark your calendars. This will be every Thursday night. And I'd like to know what you guys thought of the format. You know, this is a new format. So um, please, uh, if, if you can, let us know one way or the other. Maybe you're a friend of mine on Facebook, and you can uh, shoot me a message, or you can put a comment here whatever it may be. Uh, I want to know what you thought of this, this, uh, this compared to our regular theology unplugged, or maybe you've never seen our regular theology unplugged. Um, uh, but uh, to comment on the format, to comment on uh, how we, how we did this. So uh, I'll look at those. Uh, we'll leave this up, this broadcast up on Facebook so everybody can see it. And um, I'll check the comments to see what everybody thought.